0: Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 5. We're back into the Beatitudes. Um, good news for you. So, for some, maybe we only have a few weeks left. I think three. And then we shall be finished. Uh, if you are new or um, you haven't been with us for a while, uh, we've been in the Beatitudes for a while. And we are today on our sixth Beatitude, I believe. Or is it seventh? I lose count, but. Uh, Yeah, so if you have your Bibles over in Matthew chapter 5, if you don't have your Bibles with you, go ahead and uh, look on the screen. And as we've been doing for this series, we're going to stand together. Um, and uh, we're going to read this together. We're going to try something new today, though. We're going to try to split the room in half, like right here, and this side to my right or the left is going to read the blessed are the poor in spirit portion, and then this side is going to read the part that says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and when you get to verse 11 and 12, this side will read verse 11, and then this side will read verse 12. Okay, everyone get that? I know, it's a little complicated. This I'll read the first first portion, and this I'll read as the second portion. So uh, let's stand, rise together. I will read verses 1 and 2, and then verses 3 over here on the left. Goose will help us over here, and then over here, uh, Paul, nice and loud, uh, to help us on this side, okay? So when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying... This is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. So when I read this particular beatitude, two immediate questions or thoughts come to mind, and they're this. First is, man, like, what would it be like to actually see God? And not just figuratively or emotionally speaking, but actually see God face to face in the presence of the almighty God, seeing him with my own two eyes. And perhaps you feel this with me because I think there are many people in the world who are not quite sure about who God is, not quite sure whether they should believe in God and so on and so forth, and I feel like the thing that would maybe put them over the edge is if they were actually able to see God on their own. There are many people who say, show me God and I'll believe. They're wanting to see him, observe him, and behold him. And indeed, if they did, they would believe. And it makes sense to me because this idea of sight is a thing that we have in our culture all the time. We say things like, what a sight to behold, right? Or we say things like, man, seeing is believing. Or if you have kids or when you're a little kid, you said things like, Daddy, Mommy, let me see. I want to see. I, see. I hear this every single day in my house. Seeing God would be a game changer in many ways. The second thought that I have when I read this right off the bat is, what would my life, our lives, all of us be like if indeed our lives were marked by sincerity and purity? where our life wouldn't have any second-guessing, no manipulation, or no hypocrisy. What would life be like if that was the case? Can you imagine? Where there's no second-guessing or any of these things, where what you see is what you get. A world where you might actually be able to trust that which you see and hear. Like, could you imagine? A world marked by integrity, clarity, trust, and as we just sang, simplicity. And for you, you're like, you know, someone said to me, like, this world isn't even possible, so I don't even know what to think. But maybe this scenario will help you, right? And this happens in the movies, or it's kind of like a thing that happens all the time. And so uh, I'm using this example. It would be a world like this, right? And you've seen this. There's a guy who likes a girl. And for whatever reasons, the girl's friends and everyone says, like, sister, like, it's too good to be true. There's no way, like, someone like him would like someone like you, which is sad, I know. The guy's too nice. He's too perfect. He's strong, but he's sensitive. He's daring, but he's gentle. He's funny, yet yet down to earth. He's rich, but he's cool. And so everyone tells this girl, all their friends, be careful. That kind of guy doesn't actually exist in the world. He doesn't actually love you or care for you for you. There's always an ulterior motive. There's always something else. It ain't all it seems to be. And the girl, inevitably, in the movies anyway, Falls in too deep for this guy and indeed gets her heart broken in the end. And her friends are right and they go, I told you, there just aren't any guys like that in the world. See, I told you, so and so, you can't trust your eyes. They will eventually deceive you. What if our world that we lived in didn't actually happen like that, if that didn't exist because there was no second-guessing, no malignation, no hypocrisy of any kind, integrity, sincerity, purity, in heart, as we said. Because indeed, God says, blessed are the pure in heart for they and only they shall see God. And this beatitude for me seems like such a world is indeed possible. And maybe, just maybe, could become a reality for you and me a world that can be found at the intersection of those who are pure in heart and those, indeed, who see God where they live. Could it be? And if these things are true and my thoughts aren't just crazy and I think um, they indeed lead to something, then it means that we have to understand two very important things about today's beatitude to understand if, indeed, there's something about seeing God and also, indeed, if the world like this would exist. Because I think in today's world, particularly, this sincerity, integrity just doesn't exist. In a world marked by Instagram and DMs and likes and all the like, you don't know what's actually going on in people's lives and you have no idea if it's true or not. Indeed, could it be that this is possible? So two things we got to learn today. One, what does pure in heart mean? What does Jesus mean when he says pure in heart? Does it mean like sinlessness, like you got to be perfect in our intentions and everything you do? And then secondly then, what is it that you and I will see? What does it mean that we will see God? Does it mean like we'll actually see him with my eyes like I can see all of you? So what does pure in heart mean, number one, and the second, what does it mean that we will see God? So let's go through these uh, one by one. First, pure in heart. Now the question for us, as we say this thing like pure in heart, I think we have an understanding or maybe a kind of an overview of what it means like, but what does this look like in everyday terms? And so to do that, we got to kind of break it down a little bit. First, you got to start with this word called heart, because in the scripture, it's not just the center of the body that pumps, it's not the organ that just pumps the blood, which of course it is. But in Scripture, in the Bible, the, the, the heart is the center of my feeling, the center of my willing, and the center of my thinking. Matthew 15, 18 through 19 says this, But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile a man. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders, and etc. What it's saying is that things flow from my heart. What you say, what you think, what you do, Start from this heart of mine, which means then the heart is the control center of the human being. Everything emanates from this heart, which is why I always tell my kids, if someone at school, one of their friends is acting kind of crazy or is being rebellious, Mason had a friend in kindergarten that would come and one time he threw a chair at his teacher. You laugh, that's really sad that a kindergarten is throwing their chair at their teacher. And so Mason came home and told us this and I told him, Mason, your friend, something is wrong with his heart. He's lacking love. That's why he does that. We should pray for him. The heart is the control center of everything we do. Okay? So then purity in heart then, the purity portion means this, unmixed or unadulterated. It's why we say things like pure gold or pure maple uh, maple syrup or like pure bread German shepherd. Something that is pure is authentic, genuine, the real deal. So you put it together then. Simply, purity in heart means unmixed or unadulterated, pure at the center of who we are. The pure in heart is a person whose center and everything that comes from it is directly aimed toward God in every way, genuinely oriented, authentically pointed at God, or the pure in heart. Now, if you're anything like me, at this point, you might feel a little uneasy because, well, let's be honest— Is anyone or could anyone claim to be such unmixed at the heart? And not even just unmixed, right? All of us are very confused people. We can't decide. Your generation especially, like, literally can't make a decision to save your lives. Like, so unmixed at the center is probably the furthest thing from who you are. But unmixed at the center, but not even just unmixed, but unmixed and pure towards God. If you're like me, you're probably like, Pastor Pete, I don't have that purity. I don't know what that means. I'm not even close I mean, I don't know a whole lot, maybe, but I know that I'm not that. And if we're being honest, TBH, I probably won't possess that very soon or anytime soon either. But I have good news for you. This is how you should feel according to the Beatitudes, because of the way that they're given. Now, I've said from the very beginning, There are a few things that you have to remember throughout this entire series all the time. And one of them was that these eight beatitudes, poor in spirit, merciful, uh, meek, mourning, and on so on and so forth, do not describe eight different people, right? So like poor in spirit, merciful, whatever, one by one. No, no, no. They're all one person, eight different characteristics of the same person. So the poor in spirit is also meek, and they also mourn, and so on and so forth. But I also said in the very beginning, if you remember, that I was so glad and thankful that poor in spirit came first because the order matters. If Jesus had started with the pure in heart first, I would have quit, and I would have never gone in, and I would have never studied, and I would have never presented this to you, and nobody would actually go for it. Because it's literally impossible in some ways for us to be pure in heart. But as my teacher said, the pure in heart must be defined by the characteristics characteristics that come before, and this is why. The pure in heart are those who are poor in spirit, because they they are imperfect, and they know that they're imperfect. Anybody in here? The pure in heart are those who mourn and grieve over their imperfection and therefore their sin and the sins of the world. Which means that they haven't gotten quite to where they want to be and they know it. The pure in heart are the meek rolling and trusting everything, especially our hurts and our pains, onto God. Why? Because they know that they cannot make it on their own. The pure in heart are the hungry and the thirsty for right relationships. Why? Because they know they're not righteous. They know they're not correct in the heart. They know their relationships are not quite right. And so they indeed, they crave it. They know they don't have it, so they want it. And the pure in heart are then merciful as well. Why? Because they own their poverty. They own their sickness. They own their hurt and their pain and their sin. And they understand that everyone else is the same. And so they give mercy and grace because they know they have received and continue to receive mercy and grace. From God. And so it creates this tenderness towards others to see their sin and to know their hurt and to extend kindness and to give pardon. If you're seeing the point, purity in spirit is not some off in the clouds thing that you can't have, but it's a real, tangible, down to earth thing that you can see, feel, and know on the ground. It's not a mountaintops type of thing. But let's dig a little deeper. Because I think there's still more that we have to get to. And and this psalm, I think, will help us. Psalm 24, 3 through 4. If you're from my generation, you know this because of the song we'll sing at the end. But it says, Who may ascend into the hill of Yahweh and who may stand in his holy place? He or she who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. According to this psalm, purity in heart is the opposite of falsehood and deceit. Or put differently, purity in heart is all about integrity. Blessed in sync are you, those who have integrity at the center. Now, this word integrity is kind of interesting, right? Because then you wonder, like, could it be? Right? For the pure in heart... The reason, why they're inte- the reason why they have integrity is because they know how easily they can be deceived and therefore they seek the truth and tell the truth and then live the truth. See, I think we think integrity is about knowing everything, therefore you can just be honest about everything, but I think we have it wrong. I think the people who have integrity about them know that they don't know everything, know that they don't have truth in here, and so indeed, because they know exactly how quickly they can be deceived and wronged and follow different things and not follow God, they do indeed give everything to God and they want the truth. So, I think then the integrity or the uh, blessed or the pure in heart are then indeed blessed are the utterly sincere, those who mean what they say and who present themselves as exactly as they are. My professor says that the pure in heart are those whose lives, both public and private, imagine that, whose lives, the lives that you live on Instagram and Facebook and Snapchat or whatever, the public and the private, the lives you live on Finsta, in your hidden account folder, in your hidden pictures folder, or whatever the case you might have, private and public are both completely transparent and open before God, and therefore others, and therefore who have nothing to hide. Now we're shaking. See, the pure in heart aren't perfect. Perfect. It's not, that's not the reason they don't hide. No, the pure in heart know and understand that they can't hide anything before God. And so they bring everything, their thoughts, as twisted and evil and dirty and wretched as they might be. And oh, we have a lot of them if we're just being honest. They bring their emotions as jumbled and as confused as they might be, and they are most of the time, are they not? They bring their attitudes as self-centered as they might be. They bring their action as sinful and despicable and full of hatred as they might be. They bring it all to God. Why? Because they know that God is the merciful one, the one who will pardon $6 billion worth of debt, will take your debt and mine and go to the cross and extend unthinkable kindness and grace to us. Now, I probably know what you're thinking. I don't want this purity, Pastor Pete. Now, there's a psalm that I love, Psalm 139. And I'll read the last two verses of it. And it says this, and just hear this. Imagine you saying this to God or even a friend or your parents or whoever. So imagine that you would say this to somebody else. And this is what David says. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Hold up. Mm. Try me and know my anxious thought. Mm. And see if there is any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. You may have read that and started... Shaking in your seat just a little bit. Search me, God, and know my heart. No, thank you. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. No, thank you. It's quite close enough, God. You've been mm, mm, just a little close, just a little close. Personal space, please. Just. It's too intimate, it's too private. No, thank you. No way. Maybe your generation or this smartphone generation would say this psalm like this Search my phone and all its photos and messages, including my Finsta and hidden albums. Try me and know my private messages. Search my anxious texts, thoughts, and comments. Then we wonder how does David, the author, write these words? I think it's because of what he wrote at the end. If you caught the reference, that was Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. It was the end. And the beginning of the psalm goes like this. It says, Oh Yahweh, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and you know when I rise up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You are intimately acquainted with all of my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, you know it all. What David is saying, you know everything already, God. You already have it all. You know everything that I'm going to think. You know everything I'm going to say. You know everything I'm going to do. But somehow, someway, I don't get it. I don't understand it. But you know everything. And yet you still, for some reason, give me grace and mercy. See, we live in a world where if we think, oh, once this person, once that person finds out what they need to know about my life, then they're out. They're gone. Poop. Out the door. Peace. Peace. But David the psalmist writes that indeed God has known, he has searched, he has seen, he already knows everything before we're about to do it and yet still you know how this story goes. Christ comes down, he lives for you, he dies a death you should have died and he resurrects again. So the purity of heart then are not the ones who know that they have everything right. They're the ones who know they don't have everything right and yet they know they can't escape God. And even better, they have zero desire to escape God because just ask yourself one question. Would you ever want to escape such a person who knows every intimate detail about all your ways, including all the jacked up and crappy things you do and yet still will say, I'm here, come, won't you love me? Who would in their right mind would run away from that? Ladies, if you find a man who's like that for you, you better snatch that man up because that that man don't come around very often. And man, if you find a woman who's like that, you better get that lady because they don't come around very often. I'm being dead honest with you. Mark my words. See, God knows everything about you and I and he doesn't just tolerate us. No, 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 no. He dies for you and for me. Is it any wonder then So the pure in heart would be then unmixed at the center, utterly sincere to the core, open and transparent to God and others. And the best part of all of this is that God tells us that this is the way you find healing and joy, not the other way around. We went over a couple weeks ago that grief doesn't kill you. Hiding your grief kills you. And yet you have a God who's willing to love you to the end, to the ends of the earth and everything that you do. And yet we hide. Why? Why? Congratulations, blessed are you, you who are unmixed at the center and utterly sincere, who open themselves up to God completely because only you will see God. Now the second question, what does it mean to see God? Like for real? Now to be perfectly honest, I'm not exactly entirely sure what this means it's literally like three or four words and it's hard to pinpoint but i think there are things that we can find out and i think this idea of seeing god is one of those mysteries of our faith that we will never quite grasp but indeed we can dig at it a little bit see when you say things like i want to see god i want to see you god we think is it like metaphorical like is it some sort of like inward thing like oh with my you know with my eyes heart the heart of my eyes what is it heart's eye whatever anyways Right? Like, is it that kind of a thing? Like an understanding with inner, like, experiential understanding? Like, Ooh, I like eyes. Oh, oh, eyes of faith. I have it written here and I didn't read it. Right? Is that what it means? Something mental or emotional perhaps? Maybe. Or is it like a physical sight? Like something you actually physically see with your eyes? Like I can see a tree or I can see a bird. I can see a mountain. I can see you. And the reason why we're not sure whether it's one or the other is because, right, the Bible shows us many things, and they're not really all specifically pointing out one thing. For instance, 1 Timothy 1.17, we're going to go through this quickly, says, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, and only God. The king, apparently, is immortal, invisible, and the only God. So that's like, you can't see that. He's invisible. 1 Timothy 6.16 says, God dwells in unapproachable light. You can't get close, in whom no man has seen or can see. So that seems to suggest that you can't see God. But in Genesis 32, there's a story where Jacob is wrestling with someone, and then as he's wrestling with him, he realizes it's God that he's wrestling with. And so he names the place Peniel, and he says this, this is Peniel. I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. So apparently he saw God face to face. And then you know this story, the famous story of Moses, where he's like, God, I want to see your glory. I want to see you, and I want to know you, and all these things. And then, and then God goes, bro, you can't see me, because if you did, you'd die. But I got, I got a solution. There's a little cleft over there in a rock, a little uh, place you go, sit in it. And I'm going to take my big old mighty God hand, I'm going to put it on there, cover you, and then I'm going to walk by while I'm covering you, and then at the end, some, at some point, I'll let my hand go, and then you'll be able to see me, and it says that Moses saw the very backside of God, and it says that his voice, I mean, sorry, not his voice, his face was so aglow that people would be like, bro. So is it you can or you can't see God? Like, which is it? Or is it like suggesting that Moses wasn't pure in heart, but Jacob was, which would suck. But I don't think that's the case because if you uh, were here a couple weeks ago, we learned that Moses was the only meek person explicitly said in the Bible other than Jesus. So I'm pretty sure that's not the case. And then we have a text like this, John 1:18. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father, but he has explained him. That he, as you will probably know, is Jesus. So now we might be getting somewhere, right? No one has seen God, but yet Jesus explains God the Father. Yes, Jesus, who is fully God, then takes on a face, which means that the disciples and the people back then came face to face with the face of the living God. That's a lot of faces. I get it. But then you're probably asking, like, what about us? Because last I checked, Jesus died, and he rose, and then he left. And I can't see Jesus face to face. I wish I could. Those disciples, those people, lucky bums. Is it like, sorry, try again later? Maybe you should have been born two thousand years ago, that type of thing. Well, no, I don't think so, because then there's a text like Mark 9:37, which says, "Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me." That's Jesus speaking. And whoever receives me does not just receive me, but him, God who sent me. So if you receive a little child, in God's name or in Jesus' name, you receive God the Father. But also, last week, as Pastor Goose preached on Matthew 25, we saw this that whatever we do to the least of these, we do to Jesus. That we do to the poor and the destitute and the hurting, right? When you slept on the floor, right? Or when you uh, didn't, when you skipped the lunch and you ate rice and beans, or, or whatever the case might be, what are the things you do? Like, those things were doing to the people. This was Mother Teresa's secret, by the way, I hope you know. She believed full heartedly that she saw the face of God. In the discarded infants and the elderly and the poor in them she saw the beauty of God's face the absolute lover of her soul but let's be honest all those things are cool I have children I get to see them in the face all the time I think they're beautiful but that's not just it because again my kids are beautiful the most beautiful in the world I'm biased I know but I also know that they're not perfect which means they're not always so beautiful like this morning, trust me, not so beautiful. So I know that their face and receiving them isn't the only thing that that's who God is, because I know God, I hope God is not like my kids, at least not fully anyway. So there's gotta be more, right? Or is that it? Now again, I'm not entirely sure, but I am sure of this. And what I'm sure is that the pure in heart sees so much more than everybody else who are not. The pure in heart see beauty, joy, and goodness in so many more things than that just which meets the eye. The pure in heart see beauty beyond beauty. They see a joy beyond the joy, and they see a truth beyond the truth. The pure in heart, I believe, when they look in the mirror, and I'm pretty sure all of you in this room took a look in the mirror today. Unless you came from Hoko, which means you're sleeping and you probably didn't look at anything because you just woke up and then rolled right out of bed. But if you looked in the mirror, the pure in heart are those who see not exactly what they see. Because we're being honest, when I look in the mirror, I don't always like what I see. Can I get an amen? Right? You see your imperfections. You see all the things on your skin. You see, oh, I'm not tall enough, or I'm not skinny enough, or I don't, I have a little bit too much fat over here. I got this, or this doesn't fit right over here. My hair's not really doing what I wanted to do, whatever the case might be. When you look in the mirror, that's not what you see. But the pure in heart are those, I think, who indeed, though they are imperfect, and they see an imperfect, poor, mourning, and not fully arrived, no quite, not quite strong enough person. Though they see that, what they see beyond that is the God who makes them effervescent, altogether perfect, radiantly beautiful, and gloriously amazing. Because the God who is alive has captivated, redeemed, surrounded, and enveloped all of your imperfection. Is He living inside of you? And therefore, that is what you see. Can you see beyond what you see face to face and see the glory of who God is in the world? That's what I think the pure in heart see. See, when I was younger and I used to preach in here and somebody used to not pay attention or be a jerk and be rude or whatever, whatever, in my heart would be like, so-and-so. I'll just pick on somebody. I'd be like, Jennifer, gosh, she sucks. She's not listening. Why? So rude. And then as the gospel began to grow in my life, what I started to realize was I saw hurt and pain there that I didn't see before. Because, you see, we're all wanting and designed to want to come face-to-face with God, but something is making it not work right. So I didn't see dysfunction. I didn't see, like, rudeness. I saw hurt and pain. And in many situations like that where people would do that, or people would come in looking real just down and dark, I would make an effort. I'd ask somebody to go and make an effort to say hello And then within weeks, all of a sudden, they weren't doing what they used to do. Why? Because they saw something different. You see, not everything is what meets the eye. Blessed are you who are unmixed at the center, who bring all of you, who hide nothing, because then only you and you only will see the God who is at work to redeem and heal all of your imperfections, making them all together beautiful and glorious. You lucky bums, you pure in heart, you will see the Lord, amen? So could it be that we can possibly maybe, just maybe, live in a world where there are no manipulations, no second guessing, no hypocrisy, but rather live lives full of integrity, sincerity, honesty, honesty, vulnerability, and truth? Could it be? And if so, how do we get it, right? That's the question. Now, let's answer the second one first, because I think it's obvious. This entire time, this whole series, we've been saying that what you do and what you must do is to repent, to turn around, to face God and say, God, I got nothing. I own my sin. Will you come and enter into my life and take over? And as I said, when we do, then these eight qualities, pure in heart, mourning, meek, righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, so on and so forth, they break out. When the gospel breaks in, the beatitudes break out. And when this happens, you and I will then begin to live lives of integrity, sincerity, and honesty. Now, throughout scripture, and you probably know this, the gospel is described as a thing called light. Oh, I didn't, oh, sorry, Sam Booth, I didn't tell you to do this, but you'll You'll know. Jesus is called the light, right? And our kingdom is called the kingdom of light. And you and I, I don't know if you know this, but in Scripture, we're called light in the darkness. Did you know that? Not only is God light, you and I are called to be light in the darkness. I hope you know this, okay? But here's the thing. I love these analogies because they're so real and tangible, and here's why. I love the fact, I don't know if you know this, you should, you know this like you know it, but you may not know it, like it's kind of one of those things, right? Light never, ever, ever loses to the dark. Did you know that? Light is undefeated in its entire existence to the dark. If we were to turn the lights out in here and the, and the sound team could do that, and unfortunately the lights will be back in here. It's pretty dark in here. I can see the glow from my iPad, but I can't really see anything. You can hide a lot of things in the dark. You can see a lot of things in the dark, or sorry, you can't see a lot of things in the dark. But the moment I ask the team to turn the light back on, everything is aglow. I know it's like magic just kidding. In the light, things become visible and open. See, darkness has never, ever, and will never, ever have a chance against the light because the light always wins over the dark, which means that when the gospel breaks in and we draw closer to Jesus and he draws closer to us because He's the light, he will begin to expose all the darkness in us. And the stronger the light, the more it exposes and the more it reveals. And the more it invades and pervades every little hidden corner, nook and cranny of your life, indeed, it might sound terrifying to you, but it's only terrifying because you don't understand who is the one who is looking at what you're exposing. Maybe if it was me knowing everything about you, you might be scared because you're like, well, Pastor Pete, he's a jerk most of the time, so if he knew these things, then he'd probably not love me and not care. But if it's Jesus... If it's Jesus, yes, while he exposes your sin, exposes your darkness, exposes your hurt and your pain and your shame and all of it, not only does he expose it, he replaces it with the light that only he can give, a light that is marked by truth, Beauty, love, and joy. All the hatred, all the hypocrisy, all the manipulation, all those things become broken and replaced by a love and a truth and a joy that's beyond even the joy and the truth and the love that you can see. It is why we are unmixed at the center, because we know that Jesus resides in here and there's nothing to hide. Could it be that that's the kind of life that you and I want to live? Because let's be honest. Don't nobody want to live the lie? Don't nobody want to live in deceit and truth. Don't nobody want to think about whether your friends actually like you and think you're beautiful or if they're just saying this they can get something from you. Don't nobody want to live that life. Nobody wants to live the life where you're dating somebody and you think, and they tell, and they tell you that they love you unconditionally but you don't know what they're doing when they leave the door. Nobody wants to live that life. Everybody wants to be fully them, open, vulnerable, completely as they are, knowing that they're accepted and loved. not because they're perfect, but because indeed we know a God who is merciful and is merciful to us, and therefore we can be exactly who we are because God, for some reason, by his grace and his mercy, is delighted in me, though there's not much in me to be delighted in. You feel? That's why I've always said to you, And I'm not bragging, it's just the truth. I don't care what you or anyone else thinks of me or what your opinions are of me as long as I know that God is pleased with me because he is the judge and he knows that I am not perfect and he allows me to be unmixed at the center. What does it matter what you think? If the pure in heart, Jesus Christ knows me and loves me and is delighted in me, why And how could I be worried about what other people think? You see, it's not that I'm not concerned about loving you or loving others. But your opinion or their opinions never dictate what I do or what I say. Why? Because God, the merciful, pure in heart one, is redeeming me. And that's called freedom. And don't miss the best part of all of this. This openness, this vulnerability, this purity of heart, this sincerity, this integrity, this overflowing passion for the truth, to live it, to speak it, to think it, and to do this, it's not my own doing. It explodes out of me. Why? Because we have allowed the pure in heart to come into our hearts. And when we get him, we are who we are because he is in us. You have to see this and understand this. So I want to finish as I invite the praise team back up with a story of a guy by the name of Leo and the famous theologian St. Francis of Assisi. And I want you to listen to this story. Actually, what you might want to do is actually close your eyes so you can hear it. If you're looking at your smartphone, this is going to mean that you can't look at your smartphone. So, But close your eyes and hear this story. And ask yourself, is this what you want? Because we're going to be honest, all of us, we hide in here. All of us care way too much about what other people think, whether they like us or approve of us, and we don't care enough about whether God, the pure in heart, indeed loves us and sees us, and the answer to that is yes. But listen, so one day, St. Francis and Brother Leo were walking down the road, and St. Francis noticed that Leo was depressed. He asked him, Leo, do you know what it means to be pure of heart? And Leo said, of course, it means to have no sins, faults, weaknesses to reproach myself for. It means to be perfect. Ah, said Francis, now I understand why you're sad. We will always have something to reproach ourselves for, right? We'll always have something that we need to fix. Right, said Leo, so I despair of ever arriving at purity of heart. And Francis said to him, Leo, listen carefully to me. Don't be so preoccupied with the purity of your heart, but rather turn and look at Jesus. Admire him. Rejoice that he is what he is, your brother, your friend, your Lord, and your Savior. That, my friend, is what it means to be pure of heart. And once you've turned to Jesus, don't turn back and look at yourself. No, 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 don't wonder where you stand with him. Because the sadness of not being perfect, and oh boy, we have a lot of that, and the discovery that you are really sinful, and oh boy, we have a lot of that too, is a feeling much too human. But all of that borders on idolatry. Focus your vision outside of yourself on the beauty, the graciousness, and the compassion of Jesus Christ. The pure of heart, praise him from sunrise to sundown. The pure of heart, even when they feel broken, feeble, distracted, insecure, and uncertain, they are able to release it into His peace. A heart like this, that is stripped and filled of itself, is filled with the fullness of God. It is enough that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, after a long pause, Leo said to St. Francis, Still, Francis, the Lord demands our effort and our fidelity. We have to try, don't we? And Francis said, no doubt about that, but holiness is not a personal achievement. It is an emptiness you discover in yourself. Instead of resenting it, you accept it, and it becomes the free space where the Lord can create anew. To cry out, you alone are the Holy One, you alone are the Lord. That is what it means to be pure of heart. And it doesn't come by your Herculean effort and your resolutions. Then how, asked Leo, and this is it. And may you take these words and live by them. Simply hoard nothing of yourself. Sweep the house clean. Sweep out even the attic, even the nagging, painful consciousness of your past. Accept being shipwrecked and hurt. Renounce everything that is heavy, even the weight of your sins. See only the compassion, the infinite patience, and the tender love of Christ. Jesus is Lord, and that's enough. Your guilt and reproach disappear into the nothingness of non-attention. You are no longer aware of yourself like the sparrow aloft in the free and azure sky. Even the desire for holiness is transformed into a pure and simple desire for Jesus. So Leo listened gravely as he walked alongside Francis. But step by step, he felt his heart grow lighter as a profound peace flooded his soul will you take a moment and just focus on the Lord gaze upon the beauty of Jesus rather than gazing upon the beauty of everyone else and ask him to fill your heart that the pure in heart would come in so that you indeed have nothing to hide will you take a moment you go to the pure heart and find your peace and your joy there. And when you're ready, we respond in song.